Hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. Our co-host today is prior friend of the show. Hi, my name is Cesar Berto. I'm a chief resident at Tecoy Medical Center uh, Hospital in the Bronx, New York. Since recording this, Cesar has started his ID fellowship at the Mass Gen Brigham ID Fellowship Program. He has invited one of his mentors and a prior guest on the show, Dr. Christina Coyle. Hi, my name is Dr. Christina Coyle from Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx. To start the episode, we are still going to do our usual um, as everyone's favorite cultured podcast. If you could share a little piece of culture or something you've enjoyed recently. Sure. Last time I, I was here, I spoke about the musical and now I'm going to yep. speak about a different one. Um, <laughs> so I just watched Ham- um, Company, remade musical wrote by Stephen Sondheim in the 70s. It was a spectacular, like all kind of fashion, Broadway type of musical. And then they changed the plot. So now the main role, instead of being a guy, it's a woman. Um, so it's quite interesting. Cool. What about you, Christina? Well, um, let's see. I haven't done anything cultural recently. So i sorry <laughs> about that, Cesar. Last time I was on, I talked about my passion for ballet and dance. Um, so... Um, the other thing that I'm passionate about is music, um, classical, and also rock. And so for those of you who know me um, or, um, or are getting to know me, I'm obsessed with Freddie Mercury from Queen. And if you didn't or did know, he actually was fascinated with the ballet and actually danced once with the Royal Ballet. But he was so bad that they actually had to just lift him around the stage and while he sang. <laughs> Yeah. So um, we share that in common. um, And uh, that's my little fun fact about culture. Great. So today's console question is a request for recommendations for workup of some brain calcifications. Um, So I'll hand it over to you, Cesar. Thank you so much. So the case that we have today, it's a 31-year-old man with no past medical history who presents with several minutes of weakness and numbness of the leg. His symptoms resolved just before his arrival at the hospital. He also reported that two weeks previously, he had two episodes of uh, facial twitching that subsided without intervention after 10 seconds. Um, he was born in rural, a rural area of Guatemala before immigrating to New York five years ago. In Guatemala, his family owned and coral pigs, and his house did not have any sanitation service. Um, on our exam, the neurologic exam at the time of admission was completely unremarkable, and a CAT scan of the head without contrast was obtained, which demonstrated multiple calcifications in the brain parenchyma. We are now called due to concern for neurocystic sarcosis, so we wanted to ask you, Dr. Coyle, how does this case fit with the diagnosis, and what additional workup would you request to confirm this diagnosis? So... Um... If I were to be called about this case, I would be certainly concerned about neurocystic sarcosis. And I put, when I'm approaching a patient with um, lesions in their brain, um, I put them into three columns. Um, And so the first is epidemiology and exposure. And was there adequate epidemiology to support and exposure to support the diagnosis of neurocystic sarcosis? And then the cornerstone of diagnosis is always the imaging. 
And so is the imaging compatible with, and so sometimes it's actually pathognomonic. Uh, there's a dot and hole sign on a CAT scan, or sometimes it, it is compatible with, but not exactly. So, you know, I kind of put check marks, very strong check marks in my brain on each one of these. And then the last one is serology, which we're going to talk about, um, which I, I look at as a support, a supportive. Um, and so those three together are the real are, are the way I establish a diagnosis myself and the way I approach this. So if I was called, this patient comes from an area of the world which is endemic for neurosister sarcosis. And not only that, his family owned uncorralled pigs. So not only is he from a region of the world where there is a lot of neurosister sarcosis, within the area, the, the country that he lives in, it sounds like he lives in an area that um he would be at risk for neurosister sarcosis. Um, in addition to that, he has seizures. And so if we look at parenchymal disease, and we're gonna talk a little bit about this, the most common manifestation is seizures. Actually, it's been estimated a third of all adult onset seizures in endemic regions in the world, and this holds for all the different studies, a third of those are due to, 29% are due to neurosister sarcosis. So seizures are really a big bulk of this disease. So he's got a symptom that's very much consistent with neurosister sarcosis, and then he's got a CAT scan. And so remember that CAT scans are great for looking at calcifications, but don't look beyond. In other words, we're not going to see extra parenchymal disease well. And we might even, because the slices are so thick in CAT scans, we might even miss a viable cyst, um, which has happened to me. Um, so CAT scans kind of give us a gross view. And so we know that this particular individual has many calcifications on the um, CAT scan. So this patient's got big checks in all the box. We don't have a serology yet, but big checks in the big boxes. And I think it's really important I think life cycles are hard for us if we don't do them all the time. So I think there's some big takeaways from the life cycles that you want to get. And so um, you 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 need a pig um, to maintain the life cycle, and the pig has to be foraging on human feces. So there needs to be um, poor um, waste sanitation. And so an uncorralled pig, especially in a region of the world where people are defecating outside, will have easy access to human feces. And so if there are tapeworm carriers and in their stool are going to be the eggs, the pig is going to ingest them. And so the pig will ingest human feces, the um, egg will have an embryo in it, which will actually go through the intestine and go to uh, muscle, brain, spinal cord and eye and in the pig it will form a cyst so for us it's it goes mostly to muscle in the pig or the tongue and there it gets um, a cyst that has a larva in it and that larva may or may not die on its own but the pig doesn't live that long right and so we sacrifice the pig and it's normally got viable cysts in the muscle and those are larva and so if you eat the pig you will eat the larva, they will attach to your small intestine, and they will develop into a tapeworm and you'll be a tapeworm carrier. Um, and so that's the life cycle of tinea solium, similar to tinea saginata, which is between the cow and the human. The difference with tinea solium and tinea saginata is that humans can act like the pig, and we can accidentally 
especially if we are around a tapeworm carrier. So it's probably a person-to-person spread. And you'll read that it could be from the environment if you're eating soil contaminated with human feces. But there's nice studies showing that there's a ring around a tapeworm carrier. So if you think about it, if the tapeworm carrier is basically not doesn't have easy access to water and so the hygiene is 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 a problem and that person has hands that are contaminated with human feces their own with the eggs on it then individuals around them like the pig can ingest the eggs and so like the pig it then goes into our muscle eye brain spinal cord and there develops a larva and so when you have neurosister sarcosis an individual like this themselves may or may not have eaten the pig, um, but needs to be around a tapeworm carrier. Um, Now you can auto-infect yourself and you could be a tapeworm carrier and also auto-infect yourself and get neurosister sarcosis. So when you have neurosister sarcosis, you are the intermediate host. You're not carrying the adult sexual stages, which is the tapeworm. Um, When you're carrying the tapeworm, you're the definitive host. So this is a disease where you theoretically could be the definitive host, auto-infect yourself, and be the intermediate host. It's a complicated, it's a complicated life cycle. And I Sarah will give you um, a picture um, so that you can look at it while I'm talking about this and we can work on that together. Um, So this patient absolutely fits the um, the clinical picture. Um, and I'd be concerned about neurosister sarcosis. Um, and so I think you asked me what additional workup that I wanted to do, right? So if I saw a patient like this, I really delve down into everything that was gone over here. And I really talk about um, you know, the situation. So where the bathroom was, where the water was, were there pegs, etc. everything that was done here. And then I get a good history about seizures. And I also ask about seizures now and in childhood. And then I also ask about whether or not the families had seizures. And I ask if whether or not they've ever seen a tapeworm. And I show them a picture. And the other thing we do is we show them measled pork or we show them pork with cysts in it. And we see if they recognize it. And that's always a lot of fun because a lot of times patient will say that and it really just pulls the whole picture together for you. Um, The other thing that I want to do is I want to remember that that CAT scan is limited and that I might be missing disease beyond the the CAT scan, so extraparenchymal disease. And so many times I'll see patients that come in and they have um, ventricular disease or they'll have subarachnoid disease, but they'll have told me they seized at one point, were in an emergency room in, you know, uh, another emergency room somewhere, and they were told that they had healed parasites in their brain. And so it was an opportunity. Normally, it's about 10 years previously, it was an opportunity for someone to have picked up that this individual had extra parenchymal disease. So I would um, definitely order an MRI on this particular patient, and I would order a serology. So one of the big teaching points here is going to be the serology. And it's, it's, it's a really terrific serology in the right setting. But I want to tell you Um, that especially my ID fellows, that when you order a serology, um, the serology that I normally do is from CDC and it's an immunoblot. It is highly sensitive. It's like 97, 98% sensitive and almost 100% specific. All right. So it's a fantastic serology. Um, But in the setting of a single lesion or in the setting of calcifications, that sensitivity drops dramatically. So a negative serology, immunoblot, Western blot, in the setting of a single lesion, or in this case, um, calcifications, 
is not going to help you rule neurocysticercosis in or out. So if a patient like this, if we get the MRI and it's negative and they only have calcifications on a CAT scan and the, and the um, Western blot is negative, I'm still going to term, you know, I'm still going to carry them as neurocystercercosis because the epidemiology is right, the CAT scan's right, um, and, I, and I know that the, the Western blot in this situation very well could be negative. In fact, most likely is going to be negative. And so that's why I say at the end of those original columns I talked to you about, I always say that the serology is supportive. Um, and so um, the other thing I want to tell you is that when you order a serology, you have to be very careful in your particular clinical setting, because most likely you're ordering an ELISA. And an ELISA is a not a great test for uh, neurocystocercosis. There's a lot of false positives. And so you want to make sure, unless you have a case that's, you know, you've got a dot and hole, the right epi, the patient responded to albendazole, so you know it's neurocystocercosis. But if you're really worried, then you really want to get a Western blot. And so currently there, I'm, I'm not going to talk about labs. There's only one commercial lab that's actually doing an immunoblot. So you have to make sure that you get an immunoblot when, especially when those check marks, the epi's kind of there, the scan's kind of there. Um, so you really need that immunoblot to help you out, to help you rule this in or out. And so that's very important that you know that the ELISA is not a great test and the Western blot is. And the Western blot is terrific for multiple lesions, um, viable lesions in the parenchymal um, space and also for extra parenchymal disease. You just the sensitivity drops in the setting of a single lesion or calcified disease. And that's a really important teaching point because we constantly um, see brain lesions and we're constantly sending off this test. And so we need to know what the limitations are of the test. Um, so I would do those, um, those things for the patient. Um, okay, so um, I think that's about that for that question. Right, Cesar? Yes, great. That was very clear. Um, so a Western blood was obtained and is in process, and a brain MRI with contrast uh, was done for this patient, which revealed dilation of the sylvian sister and with fluid-filled septated cystic lesions surrounding the proximal MCA, compatible with subarachnoid neurocystocercosis. There was no enhancement around the parenchymal calcification after the gadolinium administration. So how do these MRI findings would change your uh, diagnosis and your treatment approach? Okay, so um, a couple of things. Um, so I'm going to back up a little bit, and I'm going to talk about um, the, that neurocystocercosis, in my opinion, should not be approached as one disease. It acts very differently in different spaces of the brain, and even in parenchymal disease, viable disease is very different than calcified disease. So I think the way I break up the disease in my brain, my brain is I break it up into parenchymal, which is viable disease, which is that early disease after you ingest the, um, uh, the egg and, that, um, and you have a um, cyst in your brain. And so just remember that when the cyst lodges in your, and we're talking about parenchymal, right now. It likes to go to the gray-white junction. It's not only the place. But when it goes there, the cyst forms a scolex. And that's the dot you see 
um, on the CAT scan or the MRI. That's the scolex. And that scolex burgeons out into these membranes that then enclose it in this cyst. And the cyst is iso-intense with CSF. Um, and so early on, if you were to scan somebody, which we do all the time, people get CAT scans for a lot of reasons, you don't see inflammation. So you give gadolinium or you give contrast and that cyst does not enhance. So it can remain silent. So the Peruvians say three to five years, but Cesar, you and I have seen patients that have a disease where they have viable cysts in their brain that are not picking up contrast. And they've been in this country for at least 10 and some people have run cases 20 years. So you could argue maybe there was a tapeworm carrier around them, but that's a stretch. So we definitely, it can remain silent in our brain for quite a while till that scolex probably starts degenerating. And at that point, we start seeing enhancement after we give dye on a CAT scan or an MRI. And that fluid that's iso-intense with CSF becomes a little bit murkier. And the scolex becomes a little bit more difficult to see. So it start, so we start seeing a ring-enhancing cystic lesion with potentially maybe a scolex. P.S. I always look at the flare imaging if you are an MRI person to look for that scolex because a lot of times I can find it there. Um, and so think about it. There's a lot of things that will give you ring enhancing lesions. So again, it goes back to that epi and that serology becoming important. And so then ultimately that will regress. And we have a nice paper in 2020 out of CID that looks at treated patients with viable disease and at least 38% a year out will calcify. And so calcifications when I was your age um, and, and Cesar has to hear that a lot. Um, when I was your age, they were considered inactive. And I do air quotes for you. We now know that the majority of patients, I started this podcast off saying basically a third of all seizures in endemic regions are due to neurocystocercosis in adults. I'm now going to tell you that the majority of those seizures and those ongoing seizures are due to calcified disease. And it's probably uh, got a number of different mechanisms. Um, and so not every seizure is, is it, it, there, there's different pathophys due to this. And so the most important one that you need to know about is that these calcified lesions um, can actually, if you look at them on MRI, some of them can enhance, so they're neovascularized. And so if you were to loot out the calcium, which has been done, you will see remnants of the parasite in there. So we think some of these lesions are neovascularized, there's trapped antigen in there, and it intermittently leaks out. And we know that if you look at people with calcified disease that have seizures, 50% will actually have perilesional edema around a calcified lesion, an inert calcified lesion in your brain, inactive, which now we know is not inactive. So it's not as though you have to give albendazole to them. It's that the, that the calcified lesion is sort of upregulating the local brain, um, the brain parenchyma to form edema. We don't know what sets it off. We have no idea. It seems to be a subset of lesions, but it's probably responsible for at least half of all of these ongoing seizures in endemic regions. It's, it's, it's remarkable and nobody knows why it occurs. There's always though, if you see perilesional edema, there is always um, an enhancing lesion. So if you are the ID fellow, and you see, and you only look at what's called a T1 post-GAD, so the, the imaging after GAD is given, you'll have a ring-enhancing lesion, 
with edema and we get worried. We're ID people. We want to get rid of something in the brain and we don't know to look on the specific imaging of the MRI that shows us it's calcified or just look at a, a, a CAT scan and see that actually that lesion is calcified. It's a very important point and complicated. And I'll give Sarah some images to upload so she, you can look at it and she can teach you this. So in parenchymal disease, we know, let's go to viable disease. There's some really great studies um, out of um, Peru. Um, and so we know that just giving albendazole to viable disease is important because it decreases the likelihood of seizures. And um, so in, in uh, 2014, I think I've got my year right, we looked at dual therapy. So albendazole and prosy based on some both animal and, um, and some in vitro data to suggest that albendazole and prosy together might be more cytal. And so a study looked at dual therapy, albendazole and prosy versus albendazole alone, and found that the cytality in parenchymal disease was much more increased if you added the two together. But you didn't really get a benefit when there were only one to two lesions, because that's really not a large, think about it, it's not a large burden of disease, and so you probably don't need um, such cytality. But with multiple lesions, you probably do. That's the way I remember it, you know. But for us, we know that dual therapy, especially if you have, think about this, a large burden of disease is better. And that's the way I think about it. And so in parenchymal disease, when you have one to two lesions, we give albendazole alone, always with steroids. And we normally give it for about two weeks and we continue the steroids for another two, I give it for another four weeks afterwards in a slow taper because there's going to be ongoing inflammation and so worsening of, um, of uh, um, neurologic symptoms. And so we want to have that um, steroid cover for host inflammatory response. And so this particular disease and the way it presents to us is dictated by where it is in the brain, the burden of disease in the brain, and the host response, right? And all those together basically dictate the patient you're looking at, right? So each patient acts so differently and that's why each space is so different. And so we want to keep the steroid cover as we, even when we've stopped the albendazole or the dual therapy depending. So for one to two lesion, we're gonna give albendazole and we're gonna give steroid cover during the two weeks and then we're gonna do a slow taper. And if it's more than two lesions, we're going to do dual therapy again for two weeks, and we're going to do a slow taper, all right? And we're going to keep it on because there's going to be ongoing killing, ongoing edema. What happens if we got, we've got somebody with calcified disease like this? This patient didn't have perilesional edema, when, and we did an MRI, and there was nothing else. It was only calcified disease without perilesional edema. We're going to treat the epilepsy. That's what we're going to treat. All right. When do we stop it? Nobody really knows. What if there's perilesional edema and they seized? Well, around a calcified lesion, we're not going to give albendazole. We're not going to give prosy. This is already a dead parasite. So there's remnants within a calcification. Um, we're not going to give steroids because, or we're going to try not to. I've had to give it when patients have really neurologic symptoms like hemiparesis or something like that. But what we're going to do basically is we're going to treat the symptoms and, um, and then unfortunately those patients have a very high likelihood of recurring with, um, with uh, uh, th those symptoms. And so we have to educate the patients and many times the, the perilesional edema will be recurrent. But now we have an MRI showing us that there's subarachnoid disease and that that's a game changer. So we always treat the highest level of disease 
all right, the most severe level of disease. And so if we only gave this patient two weeks of therapy, which we wouldn't, it's calcified disease. But it, but if we somehow had only given two weeks of therapy for concurrent viable disease, you can imagine we could get this patient into a lot of trouble because um, subarachnoid disease is much different than parenchymal disease. So in, in subarachnoid disease, as opposed to having that nice scolex and the membranes and the lesion and that nice uh, progression that we talked about. Here, you have these membranes, and sometimes you can't find that original scolax. These membranes that abnormally proliferate along the subarachnoid space. And we as ID people don't think about this, but the whole entire subarachnoid space is communicating. And so even if there's areas of the subarachnoid space that we don't even see involved, it's probably been exposed, or at least the local subarachnoid space has been exposed to these membranes. And they slowly grow silently over time. And so it's years from when patients are exposed to when they present with subarachnoid disease. So the latency is very long, um, really quite long. And um, what happens is there's a large burden of, burden of disease along the subarachnoid space. And so what one gets is one gets inflammation, fibrosis, and this goes on, and vasculitis. And so ultimately untreated, and we're not sure because some people might heal treated, so we're not sure. But the patients that we see that are severe, um, that um, can develop most commonly obstruction to flow of CSF. And it can either be communicating or obstruction. So obstructed from the fibrosis, communicating from sort of the arachnoiditis that you get um, and, um, and require and have increased ICP and require um, uh, shunt. Um, so it can be very severe, this form of the disease. And when we treat these patients, and there is this trial right now that has not been published, right? It's closing up in Peru and it's been a bit delayed because of COVID, but we already, and if you pull the guidelines, based on that dual therapy with parenchymal disease and the, the, and the um, really improved cidality that we get with dual therapy, people now are treating subarachnoid disease. Because again, remember, it's that burden of disease with dual therapy, with albendazole and prosy. But here, not only are you aiming your therapy towards the parasite, right? In addition to that, you have to cover the brain with um, and the inflammation, the ensuing inflammation that occurs. Either as you see them, it's probably already occurred. We hear that this patient doesn't have inflammation because after the there was no enhancement after GAD, but you know there will be enhancement after you start giving antiparasitics. So you always have to use a very generous dose of um, steroids and a very slow taper. And patients can require months to sometimes years of treatment because the burden of disease is so great. And if you give a short course, if you give a two-week course, so you apply the rules of parenchymal viable disease to subarachnoid, and even if you do that taper that I talked about four weeks later, the many patients will actually, you'll have started the in inflammation. You'll have started this in the, in the subarachnoid space with all those vessels, and they'll either develop hydrocephalus or stroke. Um, if you do that, if you inappropriately give them a short course and a quick taper. Um, so you have to be very careful 
about controlling the host response. So it, it's a game changer when subarachnoid disease is there. And the last thing that you're going to do now that you know that there's subarachnoid disease is we know at least when there's subarachnoid disease in the base of the brain, we know that uh, 60% of individuals will have concurrent um, disease in the spine. So we always screen the spinal cord for concurrent disease because remember that whole entire subarachnoid space is communicating. And so we know whether or not there's concurrent spinal disease, even if it's silent, which it can be. Um, silent. So we look also for concurrent spinal disease. So it's really going to change our management dramatically. And I think more importantly, in the, well, it, the same, it's going to change the outcome of a patient like this if you pick this up. So it's very important for you to understand that they are sort of different forms of the same parasite. I hope that answered that. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much. And so this patient was started on prednisone 60 milligrams, which was followed by a careful taper. And three days later, um, albendazole and praziquantel were added. Um, and we want you to um, emphasize a little bit in terms of how long would you recommend to treat this patient? When would you decide to stop therapy? And what complications can you expect during this long therapy that the patient is going to require? So... Um... I want to I want to start with a couple of things. Um, so I think personally, I just have to say this personally. This is a, a tricky disease because you're going to be with this patient for months and months. And so at the beginning, it really requires um, a, a real relationship, the way you have with any patient with a long term illness. It requires trust, right? And um, so that's the first thing I always do with the patient, and I spend a fair amount of time. And Cesar, you've been involved with that um, in the room, showing the patient their scans and reviewing everything with them. Um, and then um, what I do is I taper. I think about it, and it depends on this patient doesn't have a lot of enhancement, so I do. Um, this, what I call consult, this is my own brain, by the way, this isn't written anywhere. So consolidated, um, uh, um, uh, anti-inflammatory therapy. So if there's not a lot of inflammation at the beginning, I kind of go from 60 to 40 in about a two week course. Let's say that this patient has a huge amount of inflammation and just recently had a stroke or has hydro. Then I wouldn't start them three days later with albendazole and prazi. I might cool them down for a week with steroids, and I might use 80 of prednisone. So it's really dependent. It's all driven by looking at that scan and the inflammatory host response, right? And so once I do that, and I get the patient down to 40 milligrams, I start going down by one milligram of prednisone per week. And we see the patients weekly until we get to about, you know, around 40 uh, or 35, and then we start moving to monthly. And we make sure everything's written out in their native language, um, and um, they get the instructions or we make pill boxes for them. Um, and then what I do is I follow them symptomatically. And so as I taper them and why I've come up with this really very slow taper is that before I was doing much more um, uh, larger um, drops in um, prednisone and like five, first five milligrams, and I got into trouble and then even 2.5. And this parasite seems to be exquisitely sensitive um, to basically revealing the antigen, the way I think about it, not having the proper inflammatory response just sets it off in the subarachnoid space. And so what I've had is as I've come down, patients have developed 
um, hydrocephalus if they already started with some mild hydro that was compensated. So worsening hydrocephalus, or I've had patients either stroke on me um, or had TIAs. Um, and so I always go up when they complain. I obviously scan them, I sort it out, and I always go up to the level of the prednisone when they were doing well. And then I start the taper again, because I know the anti-inflammatory control is key to this. Um, and then I scan them every three months. And I do, I send their blood to either NIH um, and CDC, and I'm looking for a serum antigen or PCR and um, a serum antigen, sorry. And um, I wait until the scan has normalized. And so if I'm doing it every three months, that means for a six month period. So it's quite long. And then I wait until the serum is negative. This is my style. I don't do LPs on patients when we start, just because once you do an LP, Cesar knows this, um, they normally don't want another one. So this is real life, and this is how I do it. Um, if you wanted to start, you know, normally if their serum antigen is going to be positive, then you know their CSF will be positive. So it isn't going to change my management. So that's why I do that. And I try to get the patients to be as compliant as possible and make life as easy as possible for them. So when the, everything's stabilized, so you have a negative serum test and you have a scan that has stabilized, because remember, the scan may not come back to normal, right? It just, it may have distortions, but I don't see membranes anymore. And the distortion has remained stable. I then do an LP and then I look for the antigen and PCR in the CSF. And then I have to tell you once that's all negative and it can take years on some patient. We have one patient that Cesar has been following since an intern. I saw him yesterday um, and he's still positive in the, in the serum. Why is that? Why is the burden of disease so great? And why are some people not, don't respond as well. I think it would be really helpful and they're very hard to get and expensive is to get albendazole levels. And I think that would be interesting to see if some people don't metabolize it quicker because some people I just, even when I add prosequantil, I'm just not able to clear that antigen. And you know, my experience has been when it's positive in the CSF, I mean, in the serum, um, they grow back. So it's going to, it, it, it's, think about it like I always say to my patients, like a tumor, right? You wouldn't have somebody with a tumor marker and say, okay, their tumor markers are positive, but we don't find anything on scan. We're not doing anything, right? So you know that there's something still there and they'll grow back. So I use that to help guide me, but endpoints are not clearly defined in this disease and we're learning more and more. I will say to you, there's a number of people that are pretty dedicated to this um, particular parasite. And all of us are kind of on call. It's not as though it's a diabetes and we get, you know, we're not getting a hundred phone calls a day. So many people that are involved um, in this disease will always answer and review these cases with you because they're so complex. And the first time you see a patient, it, 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 it's really hard to guide what to do, right? It, it's, it's very hard. Um, and you really do need experience with this particular disease because there are, although there are guidelines, it's, it's not as clear as other, some of this is just a sense because you've done it so much, you know? So I think that's how I would, um, I would do this. And I just want to say one thing, the Western blot, you know, yes, it will actually become negative over time, but you never use the Western blot. I'm um, great for diagnosing, right? But um, uh, not great for following. So you're not using the Western blot to follow. Great. So this patient uh, was continued therapy for 12 months. 
and a repeat brain MRI one year later showed resolution of the subarachnoid lesions. And that was the end of our case. One thing we should say is that when you first see patients, there's a couple of things you do before therapy. We always get an eye exam, which is rare. I've never seen one positive, but it's recommended by the guidelines. I do it all. I think all experts do it because if there's concurrent eye disease, that inflammation I told you about, you don't want that, that to start in the eye, right? So we always screen the eyes, but it's a real opportunity when you see patients with neurocystic sarcosis, especially if they are, um, if they themselves um, are, haven't been in care to, um, if they've been exposed to neurocystic sarcosis, many individuals may have been exposed to other latent diseases. So obviously we're gonna have them on steroids. So we will screen for strongyloides. We can screen, we, we always screen for um, TB and then many of these patients have been exposed to Chagas disease. So I have found concurrent Chagas disease because when you ask them, oh, you know, I grew up in El Salvador in a mud house. So, you know, if you take the history, they're at risk for other latent diseases. So it's a great opportunity to look for other latent infections that other providers may not have thought about. And I think that's an important thing when you're working these patients up. You know, I always leave it open to see if there's anything you feel like we missed, but also what is your take home? If people had to remember one thing specifically, what would you uh, suggest? Having the opportunity of, of taking care of patients with cystic sarcosis has been um, very interesting and very eye-opening. Many of the patients that we see in the hospital are uh, migrants, so you are able to provide them with full care. And certainly that disease, um, as Dr. Coy mentioned, can affect any space in the brain and can have different kinds of presentation. So it's always interesting to keep in the back of your mind, especially in big cities like New York, you are taking care of a good amount of migrant populations and you also need to take care, uh, take into consideration the epidemiology of the places where your patient is coming from. So I would always consider in the differential in any patient coming with seizures or increased uh, intracranial uh, hypertension um, that is coming from an endemic area to avoid missing uh, diagnosis, not only as ID physicians, but maybe any medical student that's going into ER or neurology to have that in the back of their mind. My take-home message uh, to you is that this is this is a pleomorphic disease, and the clinical presentation is really defined by the burden of disease, where the disease is located, and the host inflammatory response. And so each and we haven't talked about intraventricular, it's just not enough time, but each form, I'm going to call it a form of disease, needs to be approached differently. And um, it's an exciting disease because it is really, we don't think about it this way, but it it's an exciting disease because we really have host response, even to a non-viable parasite. Um, but you, as the person who might be a novice as this, has to first decide where your disease is what the host inflammatory response is, and then think about treatment. Using the guidelines, and there's some nice guidelines, IDSA and ASTM and H had some nice guidelines that were put out in 2019. But remember that guidelines kind of will framework it. But first for you, you need to think about where the disease is, what the burden is, what the inflammatory response is, and then use the guidelines 
for you and you always go to the highest level of the disease. In other words, if it is um, uh, subarachnoid disease, you'll treat that intraventricular, you know, you'll treat that and then you'll deal with the parenchymal and you'll inadvertently treat the parenchymal, right? Because you'll be giving uh, um, uh, dual therapy and subarachnoid disease. Um, and so I think those are my take home points is that it's really a pleomorphic disease and you need to adjust your and tailor your therapy depending on each patient, which I think makes it a really exciting disease um, to take care of. And plus the relationships you develop with patients are so incredibly satisfying. Um, so um, I just think hopefully you will um, enjoy taking care of patients with neurocystic sarcosis and reach out for any help uh, anytime you want around for you. Great. Uh, well, I want to thank you both uh, for coming back to the show because you both have visited before um, and teaching us so much about neurocystic sarcosis today. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.